Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. We're so glad to have you with us here this evening on Ask Herbal Health Expert Susan Weed, a two-hour radio show each Tuesday night. Herbal medicine is people's medicine, simple, safe, effective. Please bring your curiosity and health questions. Susan will enlighten, surprise, and delight you. I know most of you know Susan Weed already. She's my mom, so I know her. But for those of you who have not yet met Susan, I'd like to share, she is the author of the Wise Woman Herbal series, wonderful books on women's health and herbal medicine, including Wise Woman Herbal for the Childbearing Year, Breast Cancer Breast Health! Exclamation point, The Wise Woman Way, Healing Wise, The Wise Woman Herbal, New Menopausal Years, The Wise Woman Way, down there, sexual and reproductive health, the wise woman way. And abundantly well, seven medicines, the wise woman way. The newest book in the wise woman herbal series. So exciting. In addition to being the editor at Ashtree Publishing and writing her books, Susan is the director of the Wise Woman Center in Woodstock, New York. The Wise Woman Center is open to the public on appointment-only basis. She offers weekend workshops, intensives, and apprenticeships throughout the season. Susan is also available to you online via wisewomanmentor.com. There you can go and view her weekly e-zine. You can subscribe to receive a notification via email each week, or you could join her mentorship program. Susan also offers distance learning correspondence courses and online courses at thewisewomanschool.com. Join us there for colorful, instructive, easy video courses, including Easy Herbal Medicine with Susan Weed, Happy Knees, a Cancer Diagnosis, Adaptogens for Long Life, and Abundantly Well Companion Course, Wise Woman you can also just go to her website, susanweed.com, where you will find thousands of pages online with recipes, articles, art features, and so much more. Well, for now, let's see what Susan has to share with us this evening. Thank you, and welcome, Susan. Thank you, Justine, and welcome, Sarah Ellen. Hello, Susan. How are you doing this evening? I am doing wetly, which is just what the plants wanted. Nice. So this is one of those little Catskill 
thunderstorms just kind of breezed in and breezed out and dampened things down so that they could go, oh, it's been awfully sunny. Mm. Love it. Oh, I feel the And we were looking at the baby boy goats and thinking how fast they grow. Mm. But are they getting Especially how like, fast the horns grow, eh? My gosh, the boy horns are so much bigger than the girls. The diameter alone is three, four times the girth of the diameter of the girls. Yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Ma- a much heftier horn altogether. I was reading mm-hmm. today that male horses have four more teeth than female horses. Mm. That's what I said. Wow. So there is, I bet their whole jaw must probably be bigger. I guess so. Interesting. Yeah. So let's see, Justine and Allie and I had a confab today about the Hypericum confab and search engine optimization. What do you know about search engine optimization? Wow, talk about behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> so I know very little about search engine optimization, but what I learned today was things like the hypericum fabulation or even better, the hypericum colloquium, the hypericum colloquium. I'm not going to pick up by search engines, and no one will know what we're doing. Oh, nice. Whereas, you know, St. John's slash Jones Wart Conference will be found. <laughs> Easily. Easily. Yeah. You know, it doesn't thrill my frill, but I understand And it was it's a decision I've already made. You know, I had planned for the Wise Woman Herbal series for all of the books to look alike. Mm. And if you look at the cover of Childbearing Year and then the cover of Healing Wise, you'll see they look the same. They're you know uh, solid color background with some kind of white um, thing in it and an oval with a picture you're looking through. And those people who had the very first edition of Menopausal Years saw the same kind of cover. Did you ever see that cover? I have not. No, I have not. It's a woman with white hair dancing in a skirt with motherwort and comfrey and all the beautiful herbs on it. And there's a stream between her and a group of women that you see kind of... um, somewhat from the back. You don't just see their backs. You can actually see, you know, at least a quarter of their faces, some of them more. And they're looking across the stream at the bridge to the woman who's old woman who is smiling and dancing. Oh. 
right? Just like there's the image of the woman sitting with her hands on her belly under the moon for childbearing year, and the image of the woman with her hand on the, the person's forehead bringing a cup of tea for healing-wise. And so, again, it was similar image. In fact, um, drawn by the person who drew the one on healing-wise. So an artist that we knew that people liked. And women erupted about the cover. Mm. Really? What I is that heard... old woman doing on the cover of a book about menopause? Uh. Uh. What, what, what are all those hippies doing? Right, diversity. Right, we had different kinds of women looking across at her. So that because they were different, they were uh, uh, you know hippies. It was just. Oh, my goodness, you know, the judgment of the cover. And it was already a kind of bold thing to do to even put out a book with the word menopause on the cover or to put out a book about menopause. And so I decided that I would back off from the cover that was driving women crazy and do something very, very simple, which is the cover as it is now, which is one of my line drawings of an ancient goddess figurine. And the title in calligraphy. Yeah. And it is beautiful. It does. Um, yeah. So I've already known that it's, okay and wise to give way that I don't have to um, have a little ego fit about it. Or even a big one. I can just say, golly gee, I think it would have been prettier with more swirls, but I understand. Because after all, I want more people to Love my friend, Hypericum perforatum. Oh. And it upsets me when people say they've been taught to be afraid of her. Or that, or that books and websites and so on are saying that it's dangerous. Because it's certainly not my experience. So, in... This series, it's time to end the fear. We have the St. John's Jones Wart Conference. It's time to end the fear. And presenters are already applying, and I think there's going to be an easy coming out soon with the link to that presenter application if you don't know where else to find it. Um, and Sarah Ellen and I are already um, tickling the inboxes of a few people, and that will get um, more as days go on. Durga and I are in the third iteration of the um, Hypericum Goddess. So she is getting closer and closer to both of our visions being manifest. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and all of you who... Like- 
who, all of you who watched the Comfrey shorts and said, oh, I wish I'd done one of those, and who want to do a high pericum short, a St. John's short, St. John's short, short, the time is coming up. In many places, it is already in bud. So be watching for your beautiful yellow blooms and go out there, sit with them, and tell us about your relationship with this plant. What were you saying, Sarah Ellen? Oh, I, I, I'm getting more excited just hearing you talking about it tonight. It's, yeah, I feel the fire in her and the, like, yeah, the sun and the, the shining. She is just, she's honestly, she's been beckoning since the middle of the Comfrey Conference. Before you even announced, um, for some reason, Hypericum perforatum made a couple appearances that were standouts in my winter time. So, yeah, I just, I'm feeling you right now. I love it. I'm excited, very excited. And I've been finding some things. I, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but I, I was blown away at some of the things I am personally finding in looking for research and then trying to find people who might have personal experience, um, you know, to maybe tickle in boxes of, but some fascinating things, both in the um, scientific field. I came across this week two articles um, that both set out to um, talk about, about hypericin itself, like the, the actual isolated part. And I was so um, just happily blown away that both of the reports um, came to conclude that there was not any phototoxicity. They were fascinating reads, and they were very academic. They were um, scientists, not from the United States, um, doing university research, and it was just fascinating. And then on the other side of the coin, maybe you know this, but I thought this was fascinating, especially, especially since I really do resonate with calling her St. Jones Ward, and then, of course, um, Joan of Arc's um, relationship to France. I did not know that the sale of St. Jones Wort products were banned in France. Did you know that? Yes. Well, I did not know. Yeah. It's one of the Amazing. one of the reasons why it was my very next pick after Comfrey because it's a plant that is so picked on. Oh. Amazing. Amazing. So yeah, I just, whew, I'm very excited. And like, about like comfrey, it's a plant that makes my daily life better. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it was so interesting to me that Heather from um, Mrs. Um, Robinson's? Mrs. Thompson? Store. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, Mrs. Thompson's. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Thompson's. Mrs. Thompson's. Um, you know, that she was the last presenter Sunday, and pretty much the last thing she had to say was, my quality of life would be so not available to me if I didn't have Comfrey. Mm. Mm. It just resonated with me that that should be like, Pretty much the last word there at the conference is that this is a choice for me that 
gets me through my day, gets me through my pain, gets me through um, the bashes and bangs of daily life. And I feel the same about Hypericum. Yeah, I I agree. And it's so interesting because hypericum is not an infusion herb. And at the same time, it's so important to my daily life. I mean, I I turn topically to hypericum so often. Whenever my back is pulled or yanked in the wrong way or, like, I have this false sciatica thing that sometimes numbs out my foot. And it's just amazing. And then I have a husband, so when his back is out, it's so much nicer to remind him to go reach for that rather than to hear him complain about it for a few days. So she's amazing, and I couldn't imagine life without her either. So St. John slash Joneswort Conference it is so that the widest group of people will be able to find it. And like last year, um, once we start letting people sign up, it'll be free until the um, confabulation collusion conference gets underway next May. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, let's see. <clears throat> the the uh, peepers are very quiet tonight. We're outside. I'm outside with a new apprentice who's here, just here. And so, let's see if we can get into the place I want to be. Oh, good. June 7th, Jesse Harold, a coach, women's mentor, and doula who supports women through radical life transformations and other rites of passage working one-on-one as well as in women's circles and rituals. She's the author of Project Body Love, My Quest to Love My Body and the Surprising Truth I Found Instead. And she will be with us tonight at 9 o'clock East Coast time. So stick with us until then. You can hear what she has to say. Or come on back so that you can catch her. The motherwort is blooming. The poke is already as high as my eye, if not an elephant's eye. The elecampane has flower buds. Suddenly, it's like the whole middle of summer, right? Yeah, yeah. like snapping fingers overnight all of a sudden. Tonight. 
We do. We have three hands that have already been raised. I'll remind everyone listening that if you have a question tonight, you will need to press one, and that will get you lined up in the queue and ready to speak live with Susan. Our first caller has dialed in from the 845 area code. From the 845, you are live and online. Thank you. Hi, Susan. Uh, hi. <clears throat> What's up tonight? Uh, well, my cardiologist who saw me yesterday after a year uh, said if uh, I go with the EKG at the emergency room, they wouldn't let me go back home. I'll get on the surgery table immediately. And that nothing changed during the last two years in my EKG, only it got a little worse. So uh, what I am concerned about, yes, I did stop that medication, and I went on the regimen that you um, recommended, and I felt better. That I helped you figure out. Yeah, you did help me figure it out. I, I wanted to stop the medication because it made me very sick, and I felt better. However, my blood pressure went up slowly, very, very slowly, and um, I, uh, I don't mind being in the situation I am, even though she kind of marveled how come I'm still around and how come I didn't fall, I didn't break, that I still sleep at night and all the other things. But she said I can have a heart attack at any time, and I don't mind having it because I lived a long life, and my father had it died in five minutes, and his father died in five minutes, but at a very young age. And I'm 80 a week ago. 80 years old. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. Still feeling very young and still believing that I'll live a long life, but I don't want to live as a cripple. That's my problem. I have the expectation to be semi-functional, and in some respect I am, but not physically. It's more mental. And um, my question is, so... But before we get to your question, I want to interrupt and say there's no guarantee that if you had taken the drugs, you would have had any different results over this length of time than not taking them and using the herbs instead. Yes, I know that. That's why I let go of it. It's important for us to remember that because the doctor is kind of like, even if they don't say it, they kind of like, Think real loudly. Well, if only she'd taken the drugs. Well, she asked me, why did I come if I don't do what she tells me? I said, I still need help, and maybe we come up with a different idea, like taking half of the minimum instead of the minimum. I can, I'm willing to subject myself to that. And she said, okay, so you cut the minimum that I give you into half, and for a month you take only minimum. So I did get something. All right. Okay. So it's one prescription? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And do you know what it is? 
yes, I, I know what it is. It's metoprolol. It's something that it's usually given Metrop- both. Metropolo. Metop- metop- metoprolol, yeah. Metropolol. That's a drug metop- that I'm familiar with. Michael? Yeah, it's familiar. It's sent? Yeah. Um, my goddess mom, Jujana Budapest, takes it. Uh-huh. And neither one of them has had any side effects that they've noticed from it. I know you have, but hopefully taking a smaller amount will help to relieve that. Also, I think last time, weren't you taking several drugs? No, I never took several. I took only one, and then I stopped it. Was it this one, the metropolis? Uh No, that one I stopped very early. I stopped mm-hmm. the amlodipine, uh, which was for blood pressure after trying it for more than a year. Yeah. And feeling, you know, dizzy, drowsy, depressed, and... Yes, you did. You can, Very you unhappy. Were, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. You're very consistently unhappy with how that made you feel. Yes, that's true, and I still am, but I believe that if I try this while I'm still taking the tinctures and the infusions in some B12 that I was told is good for me and the little magnesium that apparently has a positive effect on opening my my arteries a little and I'm gently exercising and moving, she is totally amazed that I didn't break my bones yet. And I said, that's because of Feldenkrais. <laughs> Feldenkrais and infusions, they're a great pair. Well, uh, I have to admit that after I stopped the medication, I was still dizzy. But I noticed that if I do one hour of stretching and Feldenkrais on the floor, I'm not dizzy when I get up. All right. Yeah. 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 That's a big change. So, I, you know... I need to do it every day, and I admit I'm not that disciplined. But I don't think anybody is that disciplined. You just need to find what reward works for you. I don't know. It's really, I, I am amazed, you know, how wonderfully it works when I give that to other people. It's almost like with a prayer. When I pray for other people, it helps. If I pray for myself, it doesn't. If somebody prays for me, it does help, but I can't get you know, someone to pray consistently all the time, like for eating less because I put on weight. Well, Sacre yeah, is praying all the time. So link up to that. You know what I mean, Sacre in Paris? Sacre yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know That's they one of the a... things they say is that that their prayers are going on there for you 24 hours a day, all the time. You need a prayer 24 hours a day. Invoke them. Invoke the nuns of Sacre Coeur. You mean uh, I go on the internet? I hear them singing in my mind. We came up on the the little tram and walked in to the beautiful cathedral, and the nuns were singing. They were practicing their singing, and it was amazing. We just stood there listening to them for, oh gosh, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes. How do I get to them? 
I, I don't know of what you have to do other than to simply accept their prayer, their prayer from the Sacred Heart. Well, I, I told you. For you, you for whatever yeah. you want to use it for. To I lose weight, to feel stronger, to live longer, to reach more people with the Feldenkrais that you share, which has always been so important in my life as well. Well, I did call Unity, and they do pray for me, but I don't feel a big difference at all. Well, maybe, the, maybe the nuns have the umpa you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I will try that. Uh, my question is, um, shall I continue taking the same amounts while I start this medication, or... I should take less or more. I don't know. What do you think? I would say for now, keep on doing what you've been doing with the herbs and simply add the medication. Yeah. If you seem to be having some kind of side effect and what you want to do is use the medication, then back off on the herbs and see if that helps get rid of the side effect. Does that make sense to you? So I will take it without the herbs, and then if I have side effects, I'll put the herbs back into it. Oh, that isn't what I said at all. I, I'm aware. That's why I repeated it. Okay. That was where I got it right. <laughs> That's a totally other way of doing it. You're going to take the herbal support completely away and take the drug and see if you have any side effects from taking the drug. Yeah. That's Is that what you're proposing to do? That, that's what I said, but I'm not sure at all if this is what you said. And I think No, it's not what I said. It. It's the opposite of what I said. Yeah. So what you I said, said is keep, keep going, taking doing the, the herbs. Yeah. Keep taking the herbs just as you are in the amounts you're taking them and add the drug at the same time. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, if you have side effects from that, yeah. and what you want is to keep taking the drugs, then cut back on the herbs. I see. If I have side effects, then cut back on, on the herbs. Because what you're wanting to try now is to see if the drug works better for you than the herbs. So if there's any side effects from taking them at the same time, cut back on the herbs. You'll know soon enough if that's going to help. Well, when I was taking the drug, I was on a lower, on a lower level of uh, blood pressure. I, I know that already. Uh, is, when I, I don't okay. think metropolol is specifically for blood pressure. I think it's a general cardiac herb. Yes, it's both, it, it has a positive effect on both heart and blood pressure. But she said my heart is really, <laughs> that I could die the way she's looking at the EKG. I can die at any moment. That's why. Well, you know, I, what, I'll tell you what Elizabeth Kubler-Ross used to say to us. She'd say, we all have the instant of our death tattooed on our left buttock where we can't see it. Some people have it on a little placard in their front, but that doesn't mean that theirs number is going to come up before yours. 
Yeah, well, I'm all going to die. So yeah. if she wants to be frightened, well, I guess she's in the right profession. She but you don't have to be. Yeah, uh, she was trying to tell me as it is, and I said, you know, well, I'm... Well, she was trying to frighten you, I think, a little bit, but you're not frightened because... No, I'm not. I, I was a little not. shocked. I didn't know it was so bad because I was under the impression that no matter how much weight I have and how little I move, I still have a lot in my life that I am really attached to, loving to, and enjoying that works for me, even in this limited capacity. And I'm learning to accept and to adjust. It's part of growing old gracefully. What I can do, I can do. And what I cannot do, uh, I learn to circumvent with less movement, but gentle. Stretching is very important. I realize that. It has to do with that one hour in which I stretch a lot, and that obviously stretches my arteries, and I feel better when I get up. Yes, yes, you're so right. Yeah. It lowers your blood pressure, too. Yes, right, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for reminding me. (laughs) Thank you, Moshe. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yes. God bless yeah. yeah. He, I, I never met him, but he shines through so much, especially in the floor sequences and just in his approach, you know. Yeah, well, his method was more shining than he is a person. Well, <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> that happens to many doctors and healers. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Human beings are very complicated. We can bring forth great beauty even when we are less than beautiful. Right. Yeah. We we can give that to others and not always to ourselves. Yeah. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Hey, good luck with the metropolol. I think it's going to be swell. Yeah, I have a good feeling about it. I'm I'm willing to dare the fire. Okay. It's the time of Hypericum, the herb of fire, so good time to dare the fire. Thank you. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> Love you. Love you, too. Good night. Green blessings. Thanks. Green blessings. All right. And it looks like we've got three callers with their hands raised. I'll remind everyone listening, if you have a question tonight, you'll need to press 1 to let us know and get yourself lined up in the queue. Our next caller has dialed in from the 504 area code. From the 504, you are live with Hi, can you hear me? We sure can. What's up? Okay, great. Hi. Um, yeah, so Susan, I was just calling to. Um, I was just calling to follow up um, on an issue I was having with my son a couple of months ago with constipation, and he had like the really cold hands. Um, and you suggested, one of the things that you suggested was yellow dock tincture, which worked immediately. So we started to see relief. Um, the only thing is that I think I'm giving him too much because he is complaining about his stomach hurting. Oh. Now, he doesn't have diarrhea or anything like that, but 
almost every day he'll say in the evening that his stomach is hurting. So um, I try to give him, like, somewhere between 10 to 15 drops. Is that too much? Well, why don't you try less and see if you still get good results and his stomach doesn't hurt? So I tried going down to five, but then uh-huh. he didn't have a bowel movement. He didn't. So, like, 10 is ideal because he has one nice one. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. And um, maybe a little something for his for his tummy. Seed tea is one of my favorites for tummy ache. And it can be used alone or with a little organic orange peel if you have that. So seed tea can be made from fennel seed or aniseed or caraway seed or cumin seed. They're all related. And they're all very settling and soothing to the tummy. And you take a big teaspoonful of whatever your seed preference is, Put it in a cup, boil some okay. water, use that spoon to put a little honey in the cup. If think that he's over a year old. Yes, honey's okay? Yeah, he's two. Okay. So we'll put a little honey in there with it, pour the boiling water in, stir it up, the honey and the seeds, maybe put a saucer on it. Just let it steep for a couple of minutes. It doesn't have to steep for very long. Okay. Most adults just drink it and kind of suck the tea through the seeds, through their teeth, but for kids, we strain it. Okay. And if he only wants a sip or two, that's okay. It can be put in the refrigerator and heated up or served cold the next time you want to use it. It'll last oh, probably three or four days, maybe even longer. Okay. So you can use it again and again if you make a cup full and he only wants a little bit of it. It's one of my favorites, and as I said, if he likes the taste of orange peel and you have organic orange peel, it's a lovely additive, and orange peel is considered a digestive bitter, so it really helps whenever there's tummy ache. Okay, okay. I have another point that may be related. Um, Sure. He hasn't been sleeping, like, basically his whole life. He's almost three in August. He's never been a good sleeper. He wakes up frequently, and I didn't think it was a cause for concern until someone brought up the fact that he may have sleep apnea due to his enlarged adenoids. So last year we had a doctor tell us we had to have surgery so he could have his adenoids and tonsils removed, and I um, refused to have that surgery. And so I just want to kind of get your take. I know this is a very popular topic on, you know, tonsillectomies and removing the adenoids. So if you could maybe just give me some guidance on that and maybe things that I can do to help him sleep better. Having having my tonsils and adenoids removed probably saved my life. Okay. So, um, and that was way back when there was ether and it was kind of a scary operation. On the other hand, I got to eat as much ice cream as I wanted afterwards. So that was good. There's certainly always risks whenever we engage in surgery. However, there are very great risks from not being able to um, enjoy swallowing. 
and I don't have direct memories because like your child, I was too young to have direct memories. But I have seen the charts and how disturbed my health was. When they took my tonsils and adenoids out, they said they could hardly believe how big they were and that I had been able to breathe or eat at all. I don't know what the situation is with your child. There may be someone who has direct experience with reducing the size of adenoids and tonsils. I would seek help from a Christian scientist since they are absolutely against any kind of surgery and would have resources or knowledge about what could possibly be done other than surgery. Okay. Um, that, so that's in order to I, help I him sleep, if he's having sleep <laughs> apnea, if he's having difficulty, his head has to be raised. They sell foam wedges that you can put under you. Or I know that some people who have sleep apnea and don't want to use a mask buy a what's called a reclining chair. Only they don't Mm -hmm. recline it all the way to sleep. They just recline a little bit so that their, their sleep isn't disturbed. Mm-hmm. How's your child's weight in terms of what your child ought to weigh? He's always been average or slightly above average. Okay, so no problem there. He's being able to swallow no. and eat well. Well, lately he's been kind of um, coughing up and throwing up a little bit. Yeah. Almost every day now. Yeah. So you, it's it's always a difficult place to be to say, what is going to be better for my child? What is going to be the least worst for my child? Is it going to be worse for my child to be spitting up and have his pleasure in nourishment interfered with and his inability to sleep and his life disrupted in that way or is it going to be worse for my child to have to endure surgery modern medicine very strongly thinks that surgery is the safer and better alternative of those two that doesn't mean you necessarily do but should you think so They will be there to help you, and you will be there to make sure that everything goes right for your son. Is that him? Yeah. (laughs) How perfect that he should join us. He's good to talk to you. Um, Well, okay, I appreciate your advice, and I also just wanted to thank you um, since he was less than a year old. Over a year, I've been calling you for advice towards him. I feel like you're his godmother. <laughs> a oh, godmother thank in some you. Way. <laughs> oh, I, I can feel my wand sparkling. 
<laughs> yes. So hopefully <laughs> one day I can make it over to New York and, and we can see you. And um, I would love to give you a big hug. <laughs> so thank you I so much. I would love to receive that hug and to meet you and your, your son, for sure. Okay. Thank you so much. Green blessings. Good night. Green blessings. Good night. All right. I have three callers have their hands raised. Uh, if you have a question tonight, press one on your phone keypad and get yourself lined up in the queue. The next caller is dialed in from the 603 area code. From the 603, you are live with Susan. Hi, Susan. It's Rose from New Hampshire. Hi, Hi. Rose. How are you tonight? I'm doing fine. I just have to share that um, I said a prayer. I can't remember her name. I think it began with M. The caller number one, I have been listening to her for years now, ever since she started calling calling in. I was calling in. Maretta, I think, is that her? I, I don't know if can say it. It's not. There was a caller named Maretta, but she hasn't called in a long time. This is, and I never say her name because I always get it wrong. It's either Titania or oh, yes, Titiana. You know, I murder, I murder her name. I love her so, and I don't want to mess up her name. And I always do. And it's one of those. Oh God, you just caught in that loop, Susan. You know? yeah. <laughs> well, well, I, I. Anyhow, you you pray for her, Rose. That's Maretta... Thank you. Tatiana, I thought it was Tatiana, but maybe Tatiana. There we go. You got it. Yay. Yeah, I mean, and and lo, lo and behold, she was the first caller. So when she said, "I need somebody to pray for me," well, I prayed for her before, as I as I dialed in shortly before seven thirty, and then oh, she was. Oh, Rose, the, thank you, thank you so much. So that was so, such a blessing. Oh my gosh. That was so beautiful, and um, and that last caller with the little boy too. I I remember that very well. So, well, what I have for you um, is a little bit different, um, not so serious. Um, but um, I've been wondering these things for quite some time. It's about gr- uh, growing. Um, there's three uh, plants I have question on. One is the the first one is the uh, Rosa rugosa. Um, I have been been har- harvesting that. Um, uh, that's that's the, book, the known as the beach rose. Um, I've yes, been har- one that has the big big rose hips that are nice and and fleshy. Oh, they they are beautiful, and actually that's part of my question. I uh, pl- uh, planted these years ago, and they're so beautiful. Um, in case your callers um, don't know, it, you know it's the single the single petals. Um, and um, I just love the smell, and they're just so beautiful. And because they're native, you know, they just—they're no problem at all. They just keep on coming back. Now, um, um, so what I wanted to ask you or tell you is that when I—I I was just out there today, I was a little bit late in starting to harvest them. So some of them have already gone into rose hips, and of course, like you say, they're big and beautiful. But um, I have always cut the, the rose hips off, and, and I wait till the end of the towards the end of the season in the fall, and then um, when I feel they're not going to produce anymore, then I leave um, the last rose hips 
and um, then I wait for a, a frost because that's supposed to make them sweeter. And I only harvest those because I'm, my thinking is, and I would like to know if, if it's correct, that um, when I cut off these current rose hips, um, I would think more energy would go into this beautiful plant producing more roses. Am, am I correct about that? Yes. Okay. And, and also, thank you, and also when I do cut, cut, off, cut them off, I don't just cut the bud. I go down, I count like two sets of either five or seven, whichever one uh, set of leaves they have. And then I cut it off because I figure maybe that's better too. Do you think I'm right about that? So they'll produce more. In, in other words, instead of just cutting off, I I often declare myself the world's worst pruner. Oh. <laughs> I am not okay. I am not really at my best when asked to prune plants. I know that you should cut above where right. the stalks join the main stem. And that it's really different if you're pruning on new wood or old wood or big wood or small wood. But oh, you're getting more I couldn't detail. tell you anything really good about any of that stuff. Oh, that's okay. So, that's so if you're getting like, a, a, <laughs> like information from the plant about that, I would say go with that, that that plant is a lot smarter than Susan. <laughs> okay. Oh, right. you're great. Now, my second question is with with red, with red clover now. Um oh, um I I planted uh, some seed um a few years ago and it's gradually spreading out. So I I wanted um a, a a meadow in my backyard and now I have one. And Yay. I, I <laughs> And I just love it. It makes me so happy. I'm just so filled with joy. I was out there picking again today. I pick some every day along with my uh, yarrow. And um, the same thing, uh, but maybe I shouldn't even ask you. I don't know. Do you, have you had any experience with the clover? Because I've always been just quickly nipping off, you know, the the, the flowers and leaving the rest because I have so much to do and so much on my plate in my life. I never even thought about. Well, what if I cut down to the next node? Maybe they'd be bigger. And I finally gave it some thought today, and I'm asking it, you know, and, and I, I'm not sure. So I thought, well, I'm just going to see if Susan has had any experience at all. When you harvest red clover, do you just nip, do you just snap off the bud? Because the, the ones that I follow do just are always snap much tinier. The, not the bud, but the flower, the fully opened flower. And there's usually a set, a tripartite set of leaves that comes with that flower. Yes, and a little and bit of the stem. Comes off too, yeah, a little it? tiny bit of the stem and a little bit that one tripartite leaf. And okay. like you, I only pick for 10 or 15 minutes and then take it in and lay it out to dry. Yes, I bring it right, and bring I it right do, in. I do, if I miss any flowers, like maybe it rains and they can take a couple oh of God. days and those flowers turn brown, I do take those off as well. And I'll just drop the them on the one? ground, but I take them off to keep the plant blooming. Yes, 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 yes. I, yes, I yes. hear you. So, um, and so and have plants, you noticed plants that like, they get smaller plants like clover tolerate being cut drastically? Oh, okay. 
right? Think about it. It's a, you know, it's kind of a forage crop. Yes, it is. Right, so it's used to animals browsing, which means the animal eats a lot of the plant. Yes, yes, yes. So you're right, do. but it takes longer. For yes. The further back you cut it, the longer it takes for it to come back to blossom. Whereas if you're going to be able to pick every day just picking off the blossoms, we'll ensure you more blossoms. Yes, but they do get very tiny. Like right now I'm looking at... Yes several stems that I brought to me to the phone so I could look at them while I talk to you. And um, um, above the, the blossom, below, there are two sets of leaves, you know, quite, a, uh, and with um, blossoms already coming, but they're extremely tiny. And that's uh-huh. that what I've noticed. And that's because and, you've already picked from that spot on the plant? Oh, oh, only one, only one. I mean, it's actually, I, I just went out before, while I was waiting um, to be, you know, uh, in the queue. Um, uh-huh. I, this one I left the blossom on because I wanted, to, you know, to see exactly what is below it. And there are, below the blossom, there are one, two, three, four, four sets of um, uh, new, new growth with, with a, with a, with a, Try leaf on it, but the top two underneath the flower blossom actually have tiny, tiny buds. So this, this, it got pretty tall. I mean, with our weather, like things have just shot up so fast. And I think that's what you were talking about earlier. Exactly. It's like, bam, suddenly yeah, it's, I mean, it's summer. Like, uh, this is over 18 inches long. It's almost two feet tall already. Amazing. <laughs> so, okay, well, I'm not going to worry about pruning it back as I pick the blossoms, and maybe I'll get bigger blossoms. And the other thing I wanted to ask you if you've ever experienced, today when I went out, um, oh, there there are some um, albino ones. They're exactly the same, right in with the red clover, but they're pure white and beautiful, exact, otherwise exactly the same. Have you ever run into that hap- that that happening? I haven't, but that can always happen. It's called a natural sport. It's called the natural sport? A, a natural sport or a natural hybrid. Oh, oh, okay, a natural hybrid. So what causes that to happen? Radiation from the sun. Oh, boy, I'm going to have to look into that one. Because I and thought, the seeds from that may very well give rise to plants with white flowers. But how does the first one come, you say, from radiation from the sun? May damage it in some way? No, damages the genetic material of the parents. Changes, okay. doesn't damage, changes the Change genetic it. material of the parents, which then gives rise to a child that has white flowers instead of pink. Well, that is fascinating. It's probably a gene for producing or not producing some color. Yes, okay. Because I know when we see white, all of the wavelengths are being reflected back to our eyes. Okay. So it's an interesting thing to have happened. It sometimes happens with animals too, right? They're called albinos. Yes, yes. Yes, yeah. it does, and that's that's what that's. Color what I was genes are easy to change. 
color genes are easy to change? Color genes are easy to change. What color are wild roses? Oh, well, wild roses can be white. They can be pink. They can uh-huh. be shocking pink. They can be pale pink. Uh-huh. White and pink. Pink and white. <laughs> right. Look at a rose catalog. How many colors of rose do you see? Oh, I know. That's yellow, but I'm talking That's about... That's how this. easy it is to change the color of a flower. Okay. Well, thank you. I don't want to dwell on that because there might be other colors. But the one more quick question I have, please, is on chickweed. I, I would like to know, Susan, can you tell me how I can um, get more chickweed to grow in my yard? What, what specific environment does it need? I have, you know, I planted the clover. It needs I planted some moist, chickweed just like moist, I did. rich soil. Chickweed likes to grow in potted plants, especially if you have a potted plant that you water every day and it's in the shade, and there's some chickweed growing in that. That chickweed will often grow well into the summer. Also think about seeing if you can find some Stellaria pubera, which is the giant chickweed, which is much more tolerant of summer's heat. And again, I like to grow the chickweeds in the pots of my pretty flowers because they act as a natural ground cover, keep the moisture in. I can cut them back for salad. I was just showing Nicole the new apprentice pot that had chickweed in it, and I said, give this a haircut tomorrow for the salad. Cut the chickweed back in this pot. It's getting kind of rampant here. And then take that long pieces of chickweed or as long as our hands from the palm to the fingertips and then cut that into small pieces that you put it into the salad. Yes, yes, yes. But you yeah. mentioned shade. So, so it, that's it the moist, shade? rich soil. And the pot has been in a fairly shady place, so the chickweed is very happy. Yes. Okay, I'll try that. Susan, thank you so much. You're, I just love you so much. You are just You're so welcome, Rose. Okay. I love you, too. Good night. Good have, a great, have a great night and a good week ahead. Green you blessing. too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. And we have two callers that have pressed one to signal that they have a question. Our next caller uh, is dialed in from the 828 area code. From the 828, you are live with Susan. Hey, Susan. Hi. This this is Dawn calling. I am calling because I was just diagnosed with colon cancer. Um, I am 52 years old, and I have been told that I have a genetic marker called Lynch syndrome, um, which I got the lucky draw of the card in the family along with my mother and my aunt, and Um, went in for a routine colonoscopy with no um, symptoms of colon cancer or anything like that and woke up to find out that I have two very large tumors in my colon. And um, they verified that um, they are colon cancer and that I do carry the genetic um, gene for the Lynch syndrome. So, Within the next week, I'll be having my entire colon and rectum removed. Which part of your colon is going to be removed? Uh, My entire colon, the entire thing. 
And so you'll have an, my re- you'll have an ileostomy at the end of this. Yeah, I'll have a well, I'll have an ileostomy, um, ileal something J pouch that's inside of me. Like I won't have an ileostomy outside. I I forget what they call it. I'm having a total. So, you, so they'll put they'll keep you attached to your natural rectum. Correct. I'm going to have a total um, proctolectomy with the ileal something um, pouch that's connected, you know, inside of me. But I'll have to have an ileostomy bag for like two months while the J pouch um, heals. And Uh then I'll go in for another surgery where they close the ileostomy part off so that I can go naturally. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Um, they're they're also going to be doing a total hysterectomy at the same time because as a Lynch syndrome carrier, you're more prone to ovarian, uterine, and um, cervical cancer. So they're mm-hmm. removing keep your all ovaries. Of it. Keep your ovaries. Ovarian they cancer starts they, in the tube. Keep they your ovaries. Taking... Fight for your ovaries. But because Fight for your ovaries. Ready. You can keep your ovaries. Ovarian cancer starts in the tubes. You're safe to keep your ovaries. It's not. You're not going to get ovarian cancer in your ovaries without your tubes. It's not going to happen. So you know, I had colon cancer. You know, I had endometrial cancer. You know, I kept my ovaries. So even with the Lynch syndrome marker. Yes. I mean, with a Lynch, with ovarian cancer is not going to start uh-huh. in your ovaries. If they remove your tubes, right. it can't start in your ovaries. Right. They're closed okay. off from that system. Yes, cervix, uterus, tubes makes sense. But not the ovaries. Keep your ovaries. Fight for your ovaries. You want your ovaries. You need your ovaries. And you can. You can fight for them. And I did have to continually fight for them. And, you know, the surgeon said, well, what if this and what if that and what if the other thing? And I said, good, you know, that's great. It's really important that you do this, you know, that you know about all of these what ifs, right? And I thank you for telling me about these what ifs and that what ifs. But what we're going to do is we're, we're retaining my ovaries. What you is be the, definite and clear. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm you be definite and clear. They need to ovaries. do what you are saying. They really need to. They need your permission. Right. They can't just do anything they want. They have to have your permission to do it. Right. And you're saying yes to a whole lot of you being removed, aren't you? Huh? You're saying yes to a whole lot of you being removed. Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, I still have to talk to the colorectal surgeon on Mm -hmm. Friday. It's Mm -hmm. right now. It's just a suggestion of what they're feeling is probably what is going to be recommended because of the genetic marker and Mm -hmm. my um, increase of, you know, the various cancers that go in line with the Lynch syndrome. Mm -hmm. 
So, so what what are you thinking? Would be your preference. Well, I mean, I guess kind of maybe one of my questions would be, what is the you say that I need to keep my ovaries? What that my body needs the ovaries? What what? Why do I need to keep my ovaries? I guess I'm naive in that respect. <laughs> if you don't keep your ovaries, you will have to take hormones for the rest of your life. Hi, are we still connected? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I don't want to take hormones. <laughs> well, then keep your ovaries. If you don't have your ovaries, your risk of a heart attack quadruples. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, then I guess, you know, when I talk to the GYN, I'll definitely fight to keep my ovaries. But yeah. another... <laughs> if you want to keep your uterus and cervix and so on, since there's no cancer there, they can't prevent you from keeping a non-cancerous organ. They can oh, say... Oh, no, I want to get rid of that part. What? Then <laughs> do that to keep your ovaries. Because yeah. I said, okay. well, you're giving up a lot. And you said, well, maybe not. So then I became... I thought, well, maybe I've read her wrong. Yeah. No, I mean, I understand now about the ovary part. I mean, I just figured since... You know, I was, you know, at the menopause age anyway, what what was the need to keep my ovaries? But you're saying that I would have to be on hormones the rest of my life, and I don't I don't want to be on hormones. So um, that's definitely something that I guess then I need to tell them, you know, I don't want a complete and total hysterectomy. And, Correct. And you want to retain your ovaries. Okay. My next they know, is, as well as I know, that ovarian cancer does not start in the ovaries. It starts in the fallopian tubes and spreads to the ovaries. I, okay. a person with colorectal cancer and endometrial cancer, was allowed to keep my ovaries. Okay. Okay? So I have well, a, lot my of, next question a lot be, of cancer right there where my ovaries were. I was yeah. allowed to keep my ovaries because I fought for them. I said I wanted them. I pushed back against all of their what-ifs, what if this, what if that. Okay, what if, good. You you need to know all these things, but what we're doing is we're leaving my ovaries. Right. right. Hey, I said, if you find cancer wrapped all around my ovaries, and the only way to get rid of that cancer is to take my ovaries, then obviously you're going to take my ovaries. But that's not right. showing up on any scan. And right. I'm not feeling it. So I think you're just like putting up these, like you know, images of fear. And after the whole thing, the gynecological surgeon said, you had the pinkest, prettiest, healthiest ovaries I've ever seen in my life. It was a pleasure to leave them in your body. Okay. You need your ovaries. Your ovaries do not just produce. As a matter of fact, your ovaries only produce the hormone that allows you to menstruate for about 24 hours out of the month. Mm-hmm. All the rest of the month, your ovaries are producing hormones that keep you healthy. Okay. 
What, uh, I guess then, I mean, I thank you for that information because I'll definitely um, take that when I go to see the gynecologist on. I told um, I told the surgeons that they had to leave me three things. They had to leave my ovaries, they had to leave my bladder, and they had to leave my orgasm. <laughs> those three things well, were important. Definitely, to me. that wouldn't be any fun. <laughs> and I wanted them to know. Now, I, yeah. I said, you know, to the gynecological surgeon, how come I can't feel it when I can pee, but I can have an orgasm? She said, well, the nerves are kind of close, and we had to choose one. Oh, okay. Well, okay, so I have to look sure. when I pee. Hey, no problem. I can still have an orgasm. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> I tell let them know what you want. Let them know what's important to you. They're working for you. Okay. All right. I mean, that's great information. I mean, I'm glad I called before, you know, my two surgeons. And I was able to recover very quickly because I was in superb health when I went into surgery. Mm -hmm. I also demanded physical therapy as soon as possible. Afterwards, and also demanded of myself that as soon as I was allowed to be as physical as I could be, even if that meant I got up for two minutes and then laid down for two hours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So be willing right now to really feed yourself well, drink nourishing herbal infusions. I kind of believe at this point that almost everybody who's calling knows about nourishing herbal infusions and is drinking them. But if you're not, this is the best time to start. Are you drinking nourishing herbal infusions right now? No, my son actually um, sent me your phone number and begged me to call because they listen to you every Tuesday. And he said, Mom, please call her and ask how you can prepare your body for surgery and for healing after. Yes. Um, so nourishing herbal infusions now, nourishing after, nourishing herbal infusions afterward. If your son's been listening, I suspect your son is drinking nourishing herbal infusions and can help you get started. You can also find my YouTube channel, and you can find my YouTubes where I'm making nourishing herbal infusions. Okay. All you need is a way to boil water, a quart jar, a scale and some dried nourishing herbs like stinging nettle. And yeah, the the doctors are pretty amazed at the really rapid recovery that I made. As a matter of fact, I like to brag a little that I told them before the surgery, because of course all of this you have to meet with all of the surgical teams, and I had four surgical teams. Um. And I told them they weren't operating on a Ford. They were operating on a Mercedes that I had taken very good care of myself, and they should <laughs> take very good care of me and treat me like a Mercedes. And the lead surgeon, the colorectal surgeon, came in to the hospital where I was recuperating and said, you know, you said you were a Mercedes, but that's not true. You're a Lamborghini. Oh, hey, that's even better. <laughs> that's even better. So at least make yourself a Mercedes by drinking nourishing herbal infusion and eating Really good quality food. Do you want right. to talk to me a little bit about your diet, what you're currently eating? Um, well, I mean, since the diagnosis, I haven't really been eating, but 
Um, I've been trying to. So when eat you at say home. you haven't been eating, are you drinking water? Oh yeah, most definitely. Uh, that's all I drink. I drink water. I have one. I'm so cup sorry of coffee. to hear that. I'd like you to stop. Stop drinking water. Please. It's the worst thing you could possibly drink. And especially now, especially as you're preparing for surgery. Drinking water disturbs your electrolyte balance. It draws down your minerals and your immune system. It makes you more vulnerable to disease. If you wanted to moisturize your face, would you put water on it? No. Then why on earth would we think that drinking water moisturizes our body? It can't. So what do you recommend? Nourishing herbal infusion, at least a quart a day. If you, in addition, want to drink a cup or two or even three or four cups of coffee, that's an excellent idea. Coffee is an herb. It's a bitter herb. It's superb for the intestines. It's an anti-cancer herb. So if you like coffee and want to continue drinking coffee, of course, you're not going to put artificial sweetener or artificial creamer in it now, are you? No, I don't. I I can't. My body can't handle that stuff. I'm so glad to hear that. What a smart body you're hanging out with. (laughs) So if you want coffee, real cream, real sugar, if you want that stuff in your coffee, but you're certainly allowed to drink as much coffee as you want, up to five cups a day, as well as your quart of nourishing herbal infusion. And if that's still not enough liquid for you, some green tea. Okay. I love green tea. Of, Of all of the plants that had been studied about helping to prevent cancer recurrence, which is what you're looking at now. You don't want any mm-hmm. kind of coming back. None has as stellar a reputation as green tea. Okay, great. You can you can bet I'm drinking green tea every day, and I have been since I got out of surgery and was told we got clear margins. There's no lymph nodes involved. There's no spread. Pat on the butt, and you go home. <laughs> That's great news. And may you hear exactly the same news. I hope so. So I also uh, was eating a lot of mushrooms. Mushrooms is what and spread. And that can just be mushrooms from the store, any kind of mushrooms, or you can get special medicinal mushrooms. Real Mushrooms has a product called Five Defenders, which is very powerful for people who have cancer. And Paul Stamets at Fungi Perfecti has My Community, which is 30 medicinal mushrooms. And we know that medicinal mushrooms work really well together. I actually had powders of both things, both the 30 My Community mixture and the 5 Mushroom, 5 Defenders. And I used both of those patterns on a daily basis from the point at which I had my first diagnosis, which was in 2017. Okay, great. I just passed my five-year mark only two years since my surgery because I had two different kinds of cancer, one of which I treated myself and very nearly got rid of, and the other of which pressed hard on its heels and disrupted a lot of things in my life just as your life is being disrupted because, wow, suddenly things change when we get a diagnosis. Oh, wow, yeah. My book, My Breast, Can- Breast Cancer, Breast Health, Breast Cancer, Christian Mark, Breast Health, Exclamation Point, The Wise Woman Way, has been used by 
uh, certainly hundreds, perhaps thousands of people who have cancers other than breast cancer. And what is that again? Breast cancer, Christian Mark, breast health, exclamation point, the wise woman away. My book, Abundantly Well, has uh-huh. a chapter devoted to deep medicine, which is surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, and how to keep yourself healthy and well through these kinds of deep medicine, as well as okay. information on things like mistletoe therapy, medicinal mushrooms, a variety of different things. So both of those books could be very helpful for you right now. And I okay. also have a course at Wise Woman's School um, called A Cancer Diagnosis, Christian Mark Health. I saw that. The Wise saw Woman that. Way. Yes. So those are some other resources that you have as you move through this. How far away from you does your son live? Um, I live in North Carolina. He lives in California. Far away. Thank goodness for the Internet. Yes. He can well, be right there helping you today, as you make fusion. So. He can be right. He can show you, you know, the Frontier website where you can order herb online and get it delivered, you know, to you in a couple of days. I right. think that you're going to enjoy making and drinking nourishing herbal infusions, and I think that you're going to very much enjoy how strong they make you feel and how much they can keep you in your good attitude, and I applaud your good attitude. Thank you. I appreciate that, and thanks so much for all your advice. I really, really appreciate that, and I did not even realize about the ovary thing, so that's a huge education piece for me, so... All right. Thanks so much. Hey, give us a call back in whenever you want to, just so we hear what's next in your story, okay? I definitely will. Thanks so much, Susan. You take care. Have a blessed evening. All righty. Thank you so much. Green blessings. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Hello there, Sarah Ellen. Sorry about that. <laughs> there, I only the rain chased us inside, but the mosquitoes came in with us. Oh, ouch, ouch. Ow. <laughs> Did you get your hero tincture? There you go. <laughs> I couldn't find a blank label for Nicole's hero tincture, so I, I put spooky on it. <laughs> but she'll know what it is. Yeah, so she'll be reaching for it a lot, so I'm sure she'll she won't forget it. <laughs> uh, um, I would say to myself, uh, since I was muted, um, we do not have any hands raised at this time, um, but we do have an email question, and also I do see Jesse in the queue already. Well, let's do the email question, and then we'll go to Jesse. How about that? All right, sounds good. Let me pull up the question here. Uh, uh, hello, most remarkable Susan Weed. I would like to ask and hear you explain. What is the wise woman approach to fear? How does fear fit into wholeness? How do I know when I am being fearful and afraid and when I am being reasonably cautious? Is there a practice 
for working with fear. Much, much gratitude and thanks. What a good question. Fear is certainly a very strong emotion. And when we think about fear, if if you thought about it since you heard that word, and I'm going to suppose that you have, you probably thought of an object of fear. We were just talking about spooky on her hero tincture, right? So an object of fear might be something that you don't understand, something that seems spooky or strange to you. And that's to be differentiated from anxiety, which is being afraid of something that might happen but isn't really there. So when we have real fear, that real fear mobilizes our body to react to the unknown in a way that could be effective at prolonging our lives. As is often said, your ancestor who didn't see the little wiggle in the bushes where the lion was hiding, oops, that isn't your ancestor, are they? It's the ancestor who saw the little wiggle and escaped the lion that is your ancestor. So also, genetically, we are predisposed to noticing things that are frightening. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said to us that we can learn to accommodate all stressors, which in one way means all fears, except for loud noises and fast motions and that we are hardwired to react with extreme fear to loud motions, loud noises and fast motions. And yet much of modern life is loud noises and fast motions. Television, very fast motion, very loud noises. Traffic, loud noises, fast motions. Riding on subways. Think about the number of fearful stimuli that pour into your body and what you're able to do about that. Because as Elizabeth taught us, we cannot accommodate ourselves to those things. We must limit them in our lives. You can accommodate yourself to all of the stressors. You can learn to deal with them. You can learn to thrive in them. And there are people who learn to use their fear as a motivator. They learn to move into the heart of their fear. For most of us, this is very much possible emotionally rather than physically. In other words, I don't want you to stand by the side of a busy road and say, I'm going to walk into the heart of my fear by walking into this busy road. That, my dear, would be quite foolish. However, if you come to an emotional place which is the equivalent of a busy road and you have always avoided it before, perhaps you want to throw yourself into it and see what happens. Fear emotionally can open amazing doors for us. 
I think about shamanic initiations and the different kinds of shamanic initiations worldwide and how fear is played with in shamanic initiations. I think about the initiation of a witch from Korea in which she had to find her magical tools and they were hidden in the undergarments of the band playing for her ceremony. And she had to reach into their undergarments to get her magical tools. She had to conquer her fear of putting her hand down a man's panties to claim her power. And then she had to climb up a 20 or 30 foot tall bamboo tower and dance barefoot on sharp swords and somehow find a place in her that was not afraid that she would cut herself and so she did not. But these are extremes, aren't they? Most of us aren't going to be faced with those kinds of extremes. So for the shaman, learning to deal with fear means also being pushed physically. Does it mean that you have to do that? Some people do. We watch some people... um, well, at first we thought they were uh, paragliding, and then we realized they had motors. And I thought, oh my gosh, what a terrifying thing to be up in the air like that. This time, you know, they send it like, like engines on lawnmower. Some people, you know, do rock climbing and sleep hundreds of feet above Mama Earth and a little bag nailed onto the rock face. Wow, the things we can do when we can let fear have a place at the table. It's okay to be afraid, and we don't have to stop because we're afraid. Sometimes we should. You already know the difference. Um, wow, that was a good question. That was a good question. I am so happy. Great answer. I'm so happy to welcome Jesse Harold to the show. Jesse Harold, a coach, women's mentor, and doula, who's been supporting women through radical life transformation and other rites of passage for over a decade. Jesse works one-on-one with women and mothers, facilitates mentorship programs, women's circles and rituals, and hosts retreats and wilderness quests. Jesse is the author of Project Body Love, My Quest to Love My Body, and the surprising truth I found instead. She also has a forthcoming title, Mother Shift, Reclaiming Motherhood as a Rite of Passage. Jesse's work has been featured in Spirituality and Health, Green Parent, Expectful and Explore magazine. She is the host of The Becoming Podcast. Jessie lives on the east coast of Canada, where she mothers two children rights and tends to her land. Welcome to the show, Jessie. Well, let's see. Jessie's oh, line is open. My, my apologies. I had myself on mute. <laughs> 
<laughs> there you are. Thank All you right. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, we are so excited to have you. So, of course, you know, I always want to cut right to the chase. What surprising truths did you find instead when you went on your quest for love of your body? Oh, this is such a good question. Um, well, when I when I started out this, I, I really thought of this journey towards um, loving my body, so I saw it as a rite of passage in and of itself, and I went about it in that way. Um, and I and I thought that the end goal of that was to love my body. And as I um, as I kind of traversed this terrain and started to learn more about my body and, and grow in relationship to my body, I realized that the, the idea of love felt really nebulous to me. Um, I didn't know exactly what that meant. Um, you know, did that mean that I walked past the bathroom mirror and said, hey, you know? Um, and, and so what became more interesting to me, a more uh, interesting and, and I think um, worthy goal, at least for me, was to come into relationship with my body and to start to understand its unique language, um, to accept it. That felt like something that was really possible and tangible and to respect it. Um, and so there was just a, a deeper nuance. And, you know, I think our culture says, just love your body, like it were something really simple to do. And I think um, in, in a culture that doesn't love all bodies, that can mm-hmm. actually be really challenging. Even if you have the kind of body that the culture says is the right body to have, you can feel that your yeah. body betrays you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. You can, you know, have all kinds of gripes about your body. As you say, the the greater part of love you found is really acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. That, and it's- that that has to change as we change. That's exactly it. You know, at the time, um, it's so interesting, at the time that I published my book, I think there was this, you know, I think when you put a piece of work like that out into the world, and I'm, I'm guessing maybe you can relate to this, um, there's this just massive energetic shift that happens. And sure enough, you know, I I released Project Body Love into the world, and a few weeks later, I had um, a massive uh, spike in my blood pressure and kind of like went through what I can only equate to be like a three-day-long panic attack. Um, It was horrible, and, and it actually kicked off what has now transpired to be like a multi-year um healing journey. And so wasn't it fascinating to me and, and challenging that here I had written this book and then realized that actually um, all of the acceptance and respect and relationship that I had grown with my body was actually predicated on its health. And at the time that I wrote the book, I was healthy. And so I felt like, yeah, I can, I can, I can get with this. And then you know, nearly a few weeks later, 
my definition of health got disrupted and I was kind of plunged into this journey um, that I'm still on. But yeah, exactly what you're saying is that we need to somehow, you know, or we should, we can endeavor to um, find ways to be in relationship with our body to, gosh, accept it even when it doesn't work the way we want it to. And that, that is really deep work. Um, but I think this is the work. It's this ongoing thing, right? This ongoing relationship of our, of our lives. I went to a wedding this weekend and among the vows that um, the wives exchanged were a vow to love you through growth, change, and transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> and if we can offer that to ourselves and continue to be present to our own growth, transformation, and change. Yeah, it's a beautiful point. And Susan, I think one of the big challenges that we have, so, you know, I, I use this experience of, um, of, you know, coming into a relationship with my body. I kind of applied this, um, this lens that I use to support people through radical life transformations and other rites of passage. And I think in our dominant culture, what we do when we're faced with a transformative time is we try to get to the other side of it as quickly as possible. Um, And what we end up doing is we end up skipping over two of the most important phases of transformation. And and, um, in my work, I've created this model called the four elements of radical transformation. They're earth, water, air, and fire. And the two phases that we skip over are water and air. Water is all about releasing and letting go of, of former identities, of that which is no longer. And any time that we make any kind of transformation or change in our lives, we're asked to let go of something, even when that transformation is really wonderful and beautiful. And if we skip over that um, and, and don't tend to the possible grief that may come up, you know, it will find a way to get tended. This is where I see people getting stuck. They're trying so desperately to move forward into what's next for their lives that they um, they they forget that we actually need to look back first and acknowledge and honor what is no longer. And then air is the element of, of, of not knowing. It's the liminal space. It's the betwixt and the between um, this time where we actually don't know what we're stepping into next. And so these are two of the really challenging, uh, particularly challenging in our culture where we're sort of, you know, rushing to the next thing where certainty is, you know, deified to the utmost. If you don't have goals and outcomes and a direction, then actually your sense of worthiness in our culture and our society comes into question. And so you can imagine that when we're going through life transformations, we want to skip over the part where we look back 
and acknowledge that which is, which is no longer, and where we hang out in this really uncomfortable liminal space before we step into what's next. And so the idea of loving ourselves through transformation or loving others through transformation has to include these really um, confronting aspects of what it means to make deep kind of root level change in our lives. Yes. Difficult for us and difficult for the people around us as well to let go of the image that they've always held and that is so dear to them. Yes. And yeah. how much we want to keep their love by living up to the image they have of us rather than changing that. Even in something as simple as menopause, which I think is the archetype of all rituals, um, mm. we have exactly what you're saying. We have the caterpillar who says, ah, enough of all of this, no more munching of leaves, builds a cocoon, <laughs> and then enters that liminal state, that meltdown, that green goo. And I had thought, oh, silly me, uh, that from the green goo came the butterfly, but the entomologist said, oh, no, Susan, and the green goo turns into a butterfly, and then it says, maybe not, and becomes green goo again, and it goes back and forth, back and forth before it finally becomes the butterfly. And I think that's perhaps the hardest part of that liminal state, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. This is it, I've got it, I've got it, oh, no, I don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really uncomfortable. And again, in our culture, it's it's um, it's doubly uncomfortable because people are kind of knocking at our metaphorical door, saying, "Like, are you done with this yet? Are you here yet? Have you arrived yet? Have you become yet?" And um, it's so challenging. And I think one of the big things that I support the people that I work with on is is ways that you can kind of hold your feet to the fire of that liminal space, like to stay in that discomfort. So that you can um, really reap the benefits of it, because it's actually also a time that's filled with potential. And if we skip over it, we're pretty likely to end up um, back kind of where we started out from. You know, we will have bypassed transformation and growth by bypassing the discomfort. I imagine you chortling at my answer then to the woman's question about fear. Well, I think it's really, it's beautiful. It's relevant. Um, right. And, it's so totally relevant to what you're talking about here. Absolutely. Absolutely. I heard you talking about initiations and also this, uh, what really resonated with me as you were talking about that was, um, was that we cannot adapt to, I think you had said fast motion and loud noises. And I think, um, one of the things that I see in my practice is um, it's what I call a modern-day rite of passage, right? So we have always, you know, talked about those big rites of passage, um, you know, childbirth, menopause, uh, you know, major transformations in our lives um, that are often, not always, but often dictated by our physiology, um, but I think now in our kind of modern day, we're seeing this different set uh, or, or sort of new 
manifestation of rites of passage. And I think a lot of it has to do with our our culture. You know, I'm seeing I'm seeing more and more people who are burned out, and their burnout is a catalyst for a rite of passage. Um, I've been thinking a lot lately about how living out of season or sort of out of our natural rhythms and cycles is also, I think, um, proving to be a catalyst for people's radical transformations and rites of passage, like these, these kind of moments where, where we realize, I cannot go on, everything has to change. Um, and, and, yeah, so I think that there's a lot of that modern culture. It makes so much sense um, that, uh, that those things like fast motion, fast choices, the, the pace <laughs> of our culture, oh, my goodness, it's catalyzing people to, to really question um, the ways we've been conditioned and the ways we're living. What's happening with motherhood? What's happening with birth? You know, 60, 50, 40 years ago, we were making headway in more natural births and breastfeeding and not knocking women out and not using forceps. And yet it mm-hmm. seems like the snake has started biting its tail and now cesarean sections are skyrocketing. And we have a crisis in people not being able to get formula, did I miss it, or did we not respond by saying, let them eat titty? Yeah. It's, well, you've got me on to one of my favorite topics. Um, I've been a doula for almost uh, 15 years, and so this is this is kind of the... This is where I cut my teeth, as it were, on uh, on the idea of rites of passage. And, um, yeah, currently working on a book um, that talks about motherhood as a rite of passage. And I have a theory that, once again, there are these kind of modern influences on um, – I, I focus really specifically on kind of that rite of passage into motherhood. Matrescence is the name um, that it's known as, and it lasts, I think, about two to three years after the birth of every baby. Um, and, you know, what's really interesting, I, I actually I wrote this article about it, which probably sums it up quite well, called Pitocin, Pinterest, and Patriarchy, Why Becoming a Mother Has Never Been Harder. And, I, and people, people always come at me and say, like, you can't tell me that becoming a mother now is harder than it was when we had to make sure we had enough food to make it through the winter. And no, I cannot categorically say one way or the other, but I think you're onto something there, Susan, that, you know, birth technology is really impacting um, people's, that rite of passage into motherhood. We literally know that, you know, some of the interventions that, um, that the vast majority of women um, and birthing people are, are having in their birth process actively um, affects their postpartum time. And we know this from um, the research of Dr. Sarah Buckley. If anybody wants to dive further into that, she's got some amazing work um, on sort of the hormonal impact of intervention. We've got social media and um, this kind of connectivity and technology that's deeply impacting, um, you know, in sometimes positive ways, but also in, in negative ways, um, 
people's transition into motherhood. We've got a crisis of maternal care among um, the BIPOC community and, um, you know, literally not getting um, equal and, and reasonable access to care uh, during their kind of antenatal time. And, and the list goes on. And I think, you know, another thing that I really see um, in my clients is just this kind of hustle culture that we live in and this kind of these capitalist patriarchal norms that have um, that have people you know not resting at all and moving like right back into life after they have a baby. We've got a lack of social policy that supports that also, um, particularly in the United States and other places where there's a lack of um, of postpartum leave of maternity leave. So there's so many of these influences, and I could go on. There's many of them um, that are that are deeply shifting our experience of what it is to traverse this right of passage. But that, that's the answer to my complaint, of course, is right. that that the women can't get, breastfeed their babies because they've been forced back to work. Oh, absolutely! It's a huge, it's a huge issue. I mean, there's so, there's so much there, and there's. You know, we really fail to honor and venerate um, motherhood and mothers. Um, and and I think that's, you know, probably part of the root structure of of the problem that we're facing. Um, and of course, it's, it's, it's one of my hobby horses as well. If you want to dictate to women that they must reproduce, then you must support that woman to raise that child. With health care, with education, with food, with everything that child needs. You can't just say to a woman, you have to have this child, and now you're on your own to raise it. We're not going to support you or the kid. Yeah, and I think that's another huge, huge piece is the loss of the village and this, you know, that we're being asked as mothers to, um, to do the work that an entire village of people would have supported them with. And, you know, we've seen that you know, that problem skyrocketing in the context of the pandemic where people are even more isolated than they were before. And, um, and all of these things are just deeply contributing. And I, and I, you know, I really, I fear for um, a, 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 an entire generation of, um, of people for whom, you know, they don't actually get the support to traverse into kind of that archetypal capital M motherhood, like that fully embodied um, motherhood. And that, you know, I, I don't know what that means for us. I, and and I, I worry about that. Well, you do more than worry. You take effective <laughs> steps to help women. If women want to get in touch with you, Jesse, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, well, my website is www.jessieherald.com, so J-E-S-S-I-E-H-A-R-R-O-L-D. And I also hang out on social media at, um, so mostly Instagram, jessie.es.herald. And those are great ways to get in touch with me. Um, I've got some really beautiful free resources and things like that that people can access. And so hopefully there's something there that serves them. Thank you. There are seven core competencies 
that we need for radical transformation. Can you tell us about all of them or one of them? (laughs) Yeah. Why don't I do a quick overview of them all? So the way I see it is, you know, I've talked about the four elements of radical transformation and these seven core competencies of radical transformation are these, these skills and capacities that are our birthright as humans, but have been lost along the way. And they are necessary um, for us to cultivate and develop in order to traverse times of major change in our lives with more ease. Um, I would say in order to access the full potential of the rites of passage in our lives. And what's interesting about them is that they're not only skills and capacities that are helpful to us as individuals, but they're actually really culture-changing competencies. They're what the world needs more of. And so I'll go over them really briefly. Um, The first one is self-tending. So understanding how to recognize the needs of you, of your body, of your emotions, um, your spirit, and then tend to those needs. And it sounds really simple, but anyone who's struggled with self-care knows that it's not that simple. And this is really different than self-care, I think, because it's it's based more on sort of an attachment um, perspective on, like, meeting your own needs and asking to have them met when you can't meet them yourself. So I could talk all night about any of this. The second one is ritual. So this is something that we've really lost connection with um, in our modern culture and is required, I think, to be able to move through times of of change in our lives. Embodiment. So working with and being in relationship with our bodies as a way to access our inner wisdom. And also our bodies are often like the canary in the coal mine to tell us something needs to change or that something's working really well. Earth connection, we've always traversed, um, you know, across culture and history, traversed times of major transformation in our lives in connection with the earth. And so it is that we, we still need to do that, and yet many of us have kind of lost that connection. And it's also about um, understanding earth connection on a more metaphorical level, that we have seasons of our lives and you know, sometimes we're in, we talked about that kind of like water and air, those elements of winter season where we've gone fallow and, and there's no visible growth on the surface. And we need to kind of, I, I think, lean into our relationship with the living world as a midwife for times of transformation. Community. We talked a little bit about the loss of the village, but community is needed to be able to traverse times of change. Um, It was in many cultures um, said that you were not considered to have completed the rite of passage until you'd been witnessed by your community, until someone had said, I see you and you're different now. That's really important. Creativity is another one, and I think creativity helps us process kinds of big change. It's very therapeutic, but it also literally we're creating our lives anew in so many ways. And so it's a beautiful um, medicine to tap into during times of change. And then finally, inner knowing. 
is the final of the core competencies. And inner knowing is really about developing that intuition about, um, you know, so many of us kind of outsource our wisdom. We Google things rather than um, finding our own inner wisdom to help guide us. And so that's about really um, connecting with that inner compass that can tell you what direction to move in next, what feels good and what doesn't. So there's the core competencies in the shortest little nutshell ever. (laughs) And those seven core competencies, those skills and competencies help us as we transform because they can help us to find our way through, but I find that people get swayed by the experts. Yeah, yeah, it's so. True. And they mistake so they mistake the experts for their community. Yep. Oh, my goodness. Do I ever have opinions about that? (laughs) Have we got like a whole other hour? Um, Yes, it's absolutely true. And um, I think of this particularly in the realm of motherhood. Um, You know, the mothers that I work with now, they're Googling at 4 o'clock in the morning every single thing. Does this poop look right? Does this, you know, when does my baby need to be burped, et cetera. And that was actually something that kind of happened if you look at the history of birth and motherhood, um, sort of the you know, 50s or so when we, we handed over childbirth to medical doctors who were primarily male in hospitals, we also handed over a lot of the expertise around child rearing to uh, medical doctors or other kind of healthcare professionals who were often like white males. And, um, and that is a kind of insidious sort of undercurrent um, to a lot of the way that we traverse motherhood now and all kinds of um, aspects of our lives. We have this idea that the answer lies outside of us. Um, and, and, and it's true that there are so many answers outside of us. It's, it's, I have a lot of compassion for, and also, like, I Google a lot, too. Like, I get it. Um, but I think that, um, you know, like, our, our ancestors didn't get to look up what the weather was going to be the next day or <laughs> what to do when their baby was crying and wouldn't stop. Um, and, and really, it's so incredibly empowering when we are able to kind of take at least some of that ownership um, for our own path and our own well-being back into our hands by insourcing our wisdom. Yes, when I talk about the ages of woman, from birth to five, the beginning of the maiden, from five to ten, the middle of the maiden, from ten to fifteen, the end of the maiden, from fifteen to twenty-five, the beginning of the mother, and identify this decade as the best decade for having children. It's the easiest, easiest to get pregnant, easiest to be pregnant, easiest to give birth. Your genetic material is primo. And then the middle of the mother, 25 to 35, 
okay, you know, still all right. The end of the mother, 35 to 45, your genetic material, not so good anymore. And people say, but, 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 teenage birth. And I say, yeah, but think about it. If you get birth at 15 and then your daughter gives birth at 15, your grandmother at 30, which is about the time many women are thinking about first giving birth nowadays. And so you got the grandbaby to take care of, which is an altogether better relationship. And it's exactly what you're talking about with the community. There's a generational role there where Mm -hmm. you don't have to worry about your baby crying because your mother is helping you take care of that baby. Mm. Oh, Susan, the number of times that I work with women on just the challenge in their relationship with their mother when they become mothers. And there's something really, um, yeah, there's something really different about that relationship. Right, because they're too old. That's probably part of it. And they were too old. They need to be 15 or 16, so they can really appreciate the help of their mothers offering them with the baby. Right, right. And I think they're too old. They think they know it all, and they can do it without her. They're wrong. Right. My generation of mothers, um, our mothers were, you know, were becoming mothers in an even more, I think, stifling time where it was either that, you know, you had to deny your motherhood in order to kind of, quote, unquote, make it in the workforce, um, or you sacrificed everything um, and lost yourself completely to the act of mothering. Um, and, and so I think that there's probably some of this, um, some of that cultural context that is now playing out in the way our grandmothers are grandmothering. Yes, I ask a young woman, a question that had been bothering me about what really is bothering young women these days, and you know, because <laughs> we worked so hard to see that they could, you know, show them that they could be anything. And she said, well, you didn't really show us yeah. that we could be anything. You showed us that we had to be everything. Yes, or that we could be really good men. Like, I think that was kind of a lot of that sort of second wave feminism was about um, learning how to, to, you know, occupy what was traditionally a man's role. Um, but that often meant denying everything about what it meant to be um, a woman or a mother or someone who, you know, menstruates or cycles with the moon. And, like, there's so many things that, um, that we were asked to deny. And I think now what's really interesting to me is how can we um, actually take up the power of our of our womanhood, of our humanity, actually, um, and 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 find power there as opposed to trying to locate it um, in a different role or a different gender identity. Yeah, I like that a lot. <laughs> Definitely with you there. And, of course, we've been holding Moon Lodges here for over 35 years, so certainly we have, you know, been encouraging women to honor themselves in their moon time and their menstruation mm-hmm. and their menopause and all of that, no matter what job they want to take. And interestingly, we've actually changed that definition so that I think there's more women doctors now than men doctors, so it's probably more appropriate to say Dr. She instead of Dr. He. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's Okay. You know, and fewer women who are really, you know, like me, who say, plumbing, okay, I'll let you do that. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's not very unforgiving. I like the woodwork much better. I could talk to you for a very long time. Jesse, thank you so much for being with us tonight, and thank you so much for the work that you are doing with women and empowering women, and especially returning ritual to its very important place. As you know, I'm the voice of the wise woman tradition, which says that nourishment is the way to heal. And I say that nourishment is a three-legged stool. It certainly has to do with what we eat and drink, what we put into our bodies. But it also has to do with hearing and being heard and with simple everyday ritual. The three legs of nourishment that we all need. I envision that we are reweaving the healing cloak of the ancients and what vibrant, strong, stretchy, and fun threads you are adding to this tapestry. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. And Sarah Ellen, thank you so much for being with me as we restore herbal medicine to its rightful place as people's medicine and as we craft the St. John's Joneswort Conference, the Hypericum Confabulation. Queen blessings and good night, everybody. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.